Welcome to Vision Drip, a podcast designed to give you a steady drip of our vision, mission, and DNA to establish and refine the gospel culture at Sacred City Church. I'm your host, Pastor Sam Schmidt, church planter and pastor of Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. I am so excited to have you with me as I hope this podcast helps to equip you as a disciple of Jesus in the everyday rhythms of life as we set out to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. Not only do I hope that this podcast helps you grow, but it would grow your affections for Jesus. So let's dive into this episode of Sacred City Vision Drill. Hey, everybody. We are back at it here. It has been a minute since we put out a new episode of Sacred City Vision Drip. Uh, And that has been because I have had the opportunity to be out of the pulpit for the last six weeks. And with that, my content creation has sort of dwindled down. Actually, I've pretty much to nothing besides helping guys write sermons. But um, I've been spending this time filling up my heart, my mind um, with information, growing as a disciple of Jesus myself. And hopefully uh, you'll start to see some of this channeled through both the sermons and counseling and pastoral ministry and and even through this uh, podcast that um, things that I've been thinking about, things I've been praying about, meditating on, thinking through, um, and, and some of those things have to do with some current events that are going on, and I hope to circle back around here in the coming weeks on some of the really important things that happened through the summer. Um, I'm thinking specifically of the some of the Supreme Court rulings that were handed down, especially uh, the overruling of Roe v. Wade. I want to come back around and talk about um, some of these things and, and provide a, a more of a biblical framework for you to think through and uh, and help you to think about these things and really, uh, on this specific matter, to celebrate uh, the the gospel advance in some ways of, of the preserving of the dignity, value, and worth of a human, uh, even in it, when it is in womb. And so I w- I'd love to come back, talk about some of that stuff, and then also uh, pick back up where I left off. Uh, we we're talking about building a godly home. Uh, we we're just getting to talking about marriage and and raising children, bringing up children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Some really, really important things if we're thinking generationally about uh, the sort of impact that our church can have on the city. Um, and so I am really excited to come back and touch on those things. Um, but today I'm just I'm just sort of priming the pump, telling you this stuff's coming down the pipe. Um, but in the meantime, while I'm I'm working on putting these episodes together, what I want to do is point you to uh, our latest sermon series that we launched just this last Sunday, the first Sunday of August. Um, it is called Our Aim. Um, this sermon series is about the mission of Sacred City Church. And, um, and, and so it fits right in here with this podcast of the vision of Sacred City, the vision drip that I hope to keep dripping in here um, to you in your earbuds uh, week in and week out about what God's doing here and, and why it's so important and why we ought to have a lot of joy in the fact that we get to uh, be a part of it. And so what I'm going to do today, actually, is just play you that sermon. Uh, and I'll probably do that over the next couple weeks, and, and maybe we'll be able to squeeze in a couple episodes a week here. Um, but I think this is really important stuff um, that pertains to the mission, the vision of Sacred City Church. So here is 
the latest sermon from last Sunday. Enjoy. And this series is called Our Aim. We are taking time to go back to the basics, going back to refocus on the mission of Sacred City Church. Now, I need to be clear here that we are not generating a new mission. We're not changing things up. We're not headed in a new direction. We're not rebranding. There's no pivot. We are doubling down on the mission that God has given us from the beginning to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. Now, you might wonder, if there's no change to our mission, if all of the founding documents are still the same as they were five and a half years ago, why take the time to talk about this? Well, it's because there's a thing called mission drift. We drift away from the mission. What we set out to do, our aim just gradually drifts from that center target. Mission drift is a subtle and constant organizational entropy that if left unchecked will render an organization useless. Now, this mission drift can be caused by a myriad of things. There's, there's these little crises that pop up that can distract us from the work that we're, we're called to do. It can be bad leadership. I can fail to lead this church in the right direction. Our leadership can drop the ball. It can be because of fatigue of the people, of just, we're missing the, the grand vision of the ocean and this whole building the, the boat piece by piece seems kind of mundane. We're, we're, we're losing the thrill of the adventure. It could be because of failure. We try something, it doesn't work, it fails, we get discouraged. And even times, mission drift can be caused by success or, or we get successful at the wrong things or we get successful and we let up off the gas. Mission drift can be caused by anything that leads us to turn in on ourselves, to get more concerned about the community, get more concerned with our own comfort, with our own self-preoccupation, that it takes us away from what we're aiming at. And what happens is what was once in the center of our sights, what was dialed in down the scope on that target, now is in the periphery. Now, this can happen to any organization, can happen to businesses, nonprofits. I mean, we're seeing this happen a lot all over the place, but churches are particularly susceptible to mission drift. Now, I think there are two reasons why this is the case. Number one, the church, I'm talking church universal, but also our mission as a church is a really big mission. See, our mission isn't just to show up and put on a nice Sunday gathering and pat people on the back and say, we love you and we'll see you next week. We really have this huge vision for what God, we're hoping God will do here in us and through us. It's a big vision, big mission. And the second piece of why we're very susceptible is because there's an, there is an enemy. There is a saboteur out there that as we lay the bricks, he wants to come and knock them down and so to stay faithful to the mission, or in other words, to stay faithful to Jesus, we need a ruthless commitment to our mission. It's gotta be in front of our face all of the time. We have to keep this mission dialed in. We've gotta keep the aim on target. And that's really what this series is about. It's, it's we're refocusing the aim. I don't know any hunters out there dialing in your scope that's what this is. We're, we're refocusing the mission of Sacred City Church. Now, our mission at Sacred City Church is not some arbitrary catchphrase that we just toss around. We don't, don't just slap it up on the wall in the lobby because we think it sounds trendy. 
Sounds hip, like, oh yeah, people get behind this for sure. That's not it. The mission of Sacred City Church is of utmost importance because it is rooted in the mission of God, in, in the missio Dei. See, I, I don't know if you realize this, but God has a mission. God isn't just chilling. He's got an agenda. And this mission existed long before our church, or in fact, any church existed. God doesn't just collect people, like, oh, I'm gonna adopt you into my family right now. I'm your heavenly father. You're my beloved child. I brought you into the family of God. And say, well, now, now I gotta find a way to keep him busy. He doesn't collect and say, well, here, now twiddle your thumbs by doing this mission. The mission of God is not an afterthought. The mission of God is central to the heart of God because the mission of God is concerned with God's own glory. This concern for God's own glory, this mission that God has is what caused the existence of the church. Without the mission of God, there is no church. I've got a quote here from Christopher Wright who wrote a book called The Mission of God. He says this, it is not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a church for his mission in the world. See, the difference here is the primacy, the center focus, the engine behind God's heart is the mission and he adopts people into his family. He brings them in and then sends them all out on that mission. Now, what is this mission? What is God aiming to do? Simply put, it is this. God's mission is to be known and worshiped rightly. To be known and worshiped rightly. In fact, this is what the entirety of the Bible is about. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, God is making himself known so that he would be worshiped rightly. And we see God making himself known. We see God disclosing himself, revealing himself in two primary ways. And the first is creation. The second is in redemption. Now, we've been in the this, uh, Psalms the last several weeks, and we see this motif over and over through the Psalms that, that for some reason, the psalmist just keep going back to the fact that God created the world, and because of that, God has disclosed his glory. In fact, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, right? It is in creation that God discloses himself. He puts his glory, puts himself on display, and then God creates mankind so that he would have someone to share his glory with. Romans 1, when, when the Apostle Paul is writing, he says, what can be known about God, his invisible attributes, namely his power and his divine nature, are plain to us in creation. God in creation has revealed himself to us. Now, if, if we would receive this revelation and base our lives on this revelation, things would go really, really well for us. Adam and Eve, they, like they started out great. Create God's glory here, I'm living in it, it's amazing. But it didn't take long for them to mess things up. See, instead of knowing God and worshiping rightly, humanity is inclined to suppress the truth, to, to, to reduce the glory of God, say, oh yeah, I, yeah, God's over here showing us his glory, but it's really not that impressive. There's this truth suppression that happens. And in fact, Apostle Paul in, in Romans 1, he, he really uh, 
keys us into this. This is really a, a, a central doctrine for the church. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's because we sin, because sin exists, because our hearts are tainted by sin, that we suppress the truth. And he goes on in verse 21. He says, for although they knew God, so there we have the knowledge piece, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. They didn't give thanks to him as God. They didn't worship him as God, but they became futile in their thinking and foolish, their foolish hearts were darkened Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The Apostle Paul here is pinpointing the unraveling of human society. This is what I call the humiliating exchange where we had it so good. Mankind had it so good to, to be in the presence of God. Adam and Eve, we're told, are walking with God in the, in the cool of the day. They have relationship with God. They see his glory. They've got a purpose. God has put them in the garden to tend it, to fill it, to subdue it. They, they have access to the wisdom of God, the glory of God, the truth of God, right there at their fingertips. But then they go and turn it all in. They exchange it for something counterfeit instead of wisdom. Now, Folly. Instead of glory, now there's shame. Instead of truth, we have lies. Now listen to this. The absence of truth's light will always create a darkened heart. The absence of truth's light will always create a darkened heart that doesn't see God rightly, that doesn't worship him rightly. It's a darkened heart. See, when you have a darkened heart, you have disordered loves. You don't love the right things. There's an order of what you love that gets flip-flopped and scrambled in a way that is not right. And with disordered loves, you will have misguided worship. Now, the reality is you were created to worship. There's never a moment in your life where you are not worshiping. It's not a matter of if you worship, but what you worship. And if your loves are contorted, your worship is contorted. And what happens when we have misguided worship, misguided worship creates unstable and dysfunctional lives. Now, you, you've probably experienced this before. If you are worshiping your job and you lose your job or you don't get that promotion, that thing that you were holding up on a pedestal, that thing that you were chasing after, the thing that your affections were attached to, that thing lets you down and boom, you're crushed. It's because that thing was never meant to hold you up. Same thing with your kids. You love your kids? Like in an elevated sense above your love for God? Well, your kids go do something stupid. And guess what? You're let down. That idol, that thing that you love, that thing that you're worshiping cannot sustain the weight of your worship and it will lead to an unstable and dysfunctional life. It leaves you scrambling, you're depressed, you're anxious. All of these things that don't lead to settledness and stability are produced by our anxiety that comes from idolatry. Now, with sin infecting humanity so badly, I mean, so thoroughly, I mean, you just, you just look around the world and you see how bad sin is really just running its course. It might seem like this fallenness, that this sin has really thwarted God's mission. That it might seem to you like God's back on his heels, not quite sure what to do here because it really got out of control. 
Now, if God were to stop revealing himself, like if the only place where God revealed himself in creation, uh, if that was it, then we'd be in trouble. But, but it's in the midst of sin, in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our, our futile minds and darkened hearts that God shines his light into man. That's where God begins to make himself known through his acts of redemption. And as God's light shines forth, it illuminates our hearts and minds so that we would see him rightly and worship him as he ought to be worshiped. In this, God reveals himself to a sinner, and that changes us. We see God afresh. We see God new in our affections. Our loves get reordered. Our affections change, and we worship God rightly. And when we worship God rightly, you find stability. What, why do you think it is Jesus is called the Prince of Peace? I told you that from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, that God is revealing himself. Now we see God revealing himself in Genesis 1 and 2, specifically in creation. It recalls the the creation account. From Genesis 3 on, we start to see God revealing himself through redemption. And we see flashes of redemption in the story. We see a lot of brokenness, a lot of mess, a lot of messy people, but God continues to pursue and chip away at his mission, revealing himself, illuminating the eyes of people's hearts so that they would see him and love him and worship him rightly. But all of these things that we see in the Old Testament are merely signposts of redemption. It's, it's a little appetizer to the main course of what's to come. Because the place where God most clearly reveals himself is in the person and work of his own beloved son. There's a passage in Hebrews, actually opens up the book of Hebrews. It says this. Let Let me call your attention to it. Long ago, in many times, and in many ways, pointing back to the Old Testament, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in the last days he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Interesting. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So if you look at Jesus, you see God the Father, and Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now listen to this. After making purification for sins, after bringing redemption through the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. See, in this moment, through through Jesus, God is disclosing himself to humanity in a way that he's never done before. You look at Jesus, you see the Father. And through Jesus' ministry, we see these these outbursts, these flashes of redemption. He comes and he heals the sick. He casts out demons, that that which is tainted by the power of evil. Jesus has an overwhelming power that pushes them out. Jesus restores order where there is chaos. Jesus preaches the arrival and the advancement of the kingdom of heaven. And as he does so, everywhere he goes, you start to see these pockets of redemption. But we can't just look at the life of Jesus. We we do look at the life of Jesus. But it's at the cross where we see redemption really unfold before our eyes. It's a place where the the, the author of of Hebrews says that Jesus makes purification for sin, where he, he took sin of the world, of all humanity, upon himself. 
Now, this is crazy because Jesus lived the life that you and I couldn't live, a perfect life. You want to talk about worshiping God rightly. His whole life was worship for God. Why? Because he knew his father. And it was the father's will. The heart of the father was to seek and to save the lost, to bring redemption to those who had fallen away. And so there at the cross, Jesus goes to the cross. He dies the death that sinners deserve to die. And in that moment, what happens? The sun peels back. Darkness sets in. Jesus feels the darkness of sin in in a literal sense, but also in in his heart, in the spiritual sense. He feels the darkness, the suffocation of sin as he's cut off from the Father. Now, Jesus doesn't stay that way. Jesus, Jesus, as he dies and is buried, he doesn't stay that way. There's there's a a bursting forth and glorious day. Jesus raised from the dead. Now, the reason why Jesus was raised from the dead is because death and sin and the enemy could not hold him back. Darkness couldn't win. Jesus says in, in John 8, he says, he spoke to them, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The darkness cannot overcome the light of Christ. This is redemption coming in. And those who cling to Jesus in faith are redeemed by God's grace. See, the gospel message tells us that God is redeeming a people for himself. He is bringing through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he is bringing light into the darkness. He's bringing us from death into life, from unrighteousness to righteousness, from shame to glory, from guilt to freedom. Now, this is what Luther calls the great exchange. I I say like this, uh, uh, we give Jesus our yuck and Jesus gives us his best. I give him my unrighteousness, he gives me his righteousness. And in this, we are recreated in Christ Jesus. The redemptive work is so thorough that the only way to talk about yourself after you've experienced the gospel, after you've, you've come to counter the love of Jesus is that you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Now it's in the gospel that we see the heavenly father's grace and mercy, forgiveness, his steadfast and redeeming love. And we see all of these things without compromising God's holiness, his justice, his righteousness, his integrity. And that's because sin is dealt with. He doesn't just sweep it under the rug and say, hey, I'm letting you guys off. I've dropped my standards. I'm just letting you guys off the hook. No, Jesus actually dealt with all of our brokenness, all of our sin, all of our shame. And he was condemned in the flesh. And when we believe in him, we are brought to new life. The gospel is God's power for salvation. Now, in Hebrews 1, it says two things about Jesus. That, that he made, what did he say? That he made, how did he say it? I'm trying to find it. Purification. I was going to say redemption. I knew that wasn't the right word. He, he made purification for our sins. And the second thing that they, is, they acknowledge is that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, 
The passage, I'm finally getting around to the scripture for today. Um, the passage we had read today happened smack dab in between those two things. This, this account uh, of, of its post-crucifixion, uh, Jesus is placed in the grave, and you've got the two Marys who come to see the tomb. And as they come to the tomb, in Matthew 28, beginning passage here, they meet an angel. They, they go to find Jesus, they find an angel. He's, he's white like lightning. And he says to them, hey, I know you're looking for Jesus. He's not here. He's risen. Like he said, actually, by the way, just for the record, he said he'd be risen. It's silly for you to come here and expect him. He's risen. And then he says, it's something interesting. He says, now go tell the other disciples. So they see this angel. They're commissioned to go and tell the rest of the disciples. And on the way to go tell the disciples, they meet the resurrected Jesus. They, they I mean, can you imagine coming face to face with a guy that was dead three days ago? The kind of awe, I mean, it says that they, they left the angel with fear and joy. But I imagine that moment you see Jesus, it's just wild. <laughs> like, how, how, do you, how do you tell people about that? But what happens after they meet Jesus face to face? What's the next thing? Look at verse nine with me. We're back in Matthew 28. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. They worshiped him. In this moment, we're seeing real time what the Apostle Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, where he says that God has made the light shine in the hearts of man to give the light of knowledge of God's glory and display it in the face of Christ. The glory of God in the face of Christ. And what's the only response that these women have? It's worship. They bow down, take his feet, and worship him. Now, look at what happens right after they do this. So they, they're on the ground, they're prostrate, they're worshiping Jesus. Look at what happens in verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. I told you, it was scary. Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. You see that? Go and tell. That, that's the second time that they've had this, this commissioning to go and tell. Go and tell. Now, when God reveals himself to someone, when, when God discloses himself, he reveals his glory to somebody, to anybody, that person is now enlisted in God's mission. Life for these women will never be the same. They now have a mission that's bigger than their own lives. Now, I, um, this is a sidebar. Right now, there are a lot of people that are very interested in Jordan Peterson. I think he's a great communicator. There's stuff that I really appreciate about what he has to say. But one of the draws of Jordan Peterson a young, from, uh, that, that he has to young, among young men, it's really hard to say that, um, is the sense that he's trying to generate a purpose that's bigger than just living your own best life. He's trying to, to give men a vision for a life that actually is, has meaning, that, that you're doing hard things, that there's actually a mission there. But God has, he, Jordan Peterson is just borrowing from what God's already been doing. God has a mission for his people, something that, that brings us into a kind of glory, a kind of significance that you 